3,000 years ago, one of the great transitions in the kingdom of God took place when Israel moved from being a theocracy through uh, God speaking through judges such as Gideon and Samson and Samuel to a monarchy. And you know the story of that transition, don't you? The Israelites got tired of hearing from God through people like Deborah and Gideon and Samson, and they said, we want a king. We want a king like the countries around us. We think they're doing great, and we would like to be just like them. One of the great lessons is that God will usually give us what we ask for, right? And so he said, fine, you can have a king. The first king was Saul, who goes down in history as the man who was a head taller than everybody else. Woohoo! But it didn't take long before Saul, who was always a bit timid and fearful, became downright paranoid and ended up not being the king that Israel had hoped for, certainly not the king that God had anointed. And so then we see a new character step on the stage, don't we? A young man named David. David is one of those stories of uh, faithful and, and righteous youth. Uh, the beginning of his story is, is just one of these extraordinary stories of a person that's probably not old enough to have the wisdom and the maturity and the courage and the humility that David demonstrated. But we see that in such, such stark contrast to Saul, don't we? Saul is out for blood. Saul is, is going to hold on to his throne at whatever, the, at whatever cost. But David is faithfully following the anointing of God and will not, although he had several opportunities, will not kill Saul, will not uh, take the throne in his own hands. He's the epitome of faith and courage in the face of the Philistine threat with Goliath. Uh, all of the other Israelites, including his brothers, including the king, are hiding in their tents and running for their lives. David goes out there to, to meet the challenge with nothing more than five small stones and a sling. As Saul's paranoia gets more and more pronounced, we see David as the one of mercy and patience, opportunities to kill Saul that he doesn't take. David appears to be the exact opposite of the failed king Saul, doesn't he? He is later described as a man after God's own heart. But you know the story. It doesn't take long before, after becoming king himself, that another side of David begins to be seen, doesn't it? You, you know the story. It's, it's a number of years later, but it begins by saying in the springtime when kings should be taking their armies out for war, when kings should be leading the armies in the dangerous business of warfare, David decides instead to stay at home in the comfort and security of his palace in Jerusalem. 
And while his generals and his armies are out facing the challenges of war and dying, David happens to be on the roof of his house and looks down and sees one of his neighbors, Bathsheba, the wife of one of his army leaders, bathing on the rooftop. And one thing leads to another, beginning with lust. She is sent for, she comes to him, she becomes pregnant. When they find out that she's pregnant, David gets a little nervous, sends for her husband Uriah and has him come home while the army is off there in the the battlefields. He hopes that Uriah will take advantage of a little R&R and spend some time for his wife. And when she gives birth to a son, they'll know it was the husband instead of David. But Uriah's integrity is like David's in the face of Saul, isn't it? Uriah, being a person of integrity, while his men are off fighting the battles, refuses to go in and spend the night with his wife. David's plan is foiled. And we see that integrity in such stark contrast to David's deceitfulness. So then David takes the next step. He sends Uriah back with a sealed message, the message being to his general that you should put Uriah out there on the front lines and have the army withdrawal so that Uriah will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. And when word comes back that Uriah is dead, then David is free to marry Bathsheba, and that's what happens. What started so well the life of a young man of faith and integrity and humility and a determination to follow God who had anointed him turns into somebody that looks an awful lot like Saul. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because there's a prophet named Nathan who God gets a hold of and said, I have a message for you to take to David the king. And so Nathan, probably with a little bit of fear and trepidation, goes and finds David. And you can find this story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. There's no more graphic picture of a pet. This is not a farm animal. There is no intention that this sheep will be eaten, right? This is, this is a family pet. Verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle, one of his many own sheep and cattle, to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David, upon hearing this story, burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. 
He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Can you imagine the soundtrack? <laughs> All of a sudden, there's absolute silence, and Nathan says to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I took your master's, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all that had, had not been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. It's his son, actually. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. That's such a powerful verse. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. When we look at the contrast between King Saul and the young man David, or the contrast between King David and Uriah, we begin to see two sides of human nature, don't we? One of them is the side of human nature that's been stamped with the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are made to be able to have communion with God. We are made to be able to hear his voice and respond. And we see that image in young David. But the other part of human nature is the sinful human nature, that which produced the despicable behavior that we see in David's life and Saul's life and every other life on the face of the planet. So what's the solution to this problem, this dichotomy between the image of God in which we are made and the sinful human nature which controls our life. What's the solution to that problem? I would suggest that we can find it on the very lips of David in Psalm 51, if you want to turn there with me. Psalm 51 is written for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had, a, had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
So while we might have the newspaper account of, of this event in 2 Samuel, what we have here in Psalm 51 is the, the thoughts and the feelings that David was having as a result of this story, a glimpse inside of what was going on in the mind and the heart of this man. Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great comp compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O Lord, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. What a beautiful picture of what's going on in the mind and heart, the soul of David as Nathan tells this extraordinary little parable and as, Jesus, as, as David owns up to the fact that he is the man, he is the one that committed this sin. In verse 1, we find the defining qualities of God. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. If you want to know what the image of God looks like, it's caught up in those three words, isn't it? Mercy, love, and compassion. Those are the qualities that have been stamped onto our lives. 
God's intent is that we should reflect those qualities to the world around us. We should be the mirrors that reflect the glory of God's mercy and love and compassion into the world around us. God's intent is that those three qualities would define us as well. But because of the fall, there are three other qualities that define us, right? Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. Those are the defining qualities of fallen people. Every man, woman, and child who has ever lived and whoever will live has the potential for mercy, love, and compassion, but instead wallows in transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Can we spend a moment here just defining sin? <laughs> what a happy topic. I would suggest that there's three broad categories of sin. The first are sins of attitude. It's the stuff that goes on in your mind that may never come out of your mouth, may never be reflected in your lifestyle, but it starts in our mind, in our soul, right? It's pride, it's anger, it's envy, it's hatred, it's David's lust for Bathsheba. It might have stopped at that, right? It might have been David just seeing a beautiful woman bathing and, and lusting after her and stopping at that, but it doesn't, right? The second kind of sins are the sins of commission. What begins as an attitude quickly turns into action. The classic John Wesley definition of sin is the willful violation of a known law of God, and I would add to that somebody else's contribution, by a morally responsible person. We know what's right and wrong. You don't have to read the Bible to know what's right and wrong. Our conscience tells us what's right and wrong. It's just hardwired into us. But when it goes from being an attitude to action, then we are responsible for that action. David's adultery with Bathsheba was that action. It went from an attitude of lust to an action of adultery. The third category of sins are sins of omission. It's not just the wrong that we do, but it's sin is also the right that we don't do. James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter in the New Testament says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. What is the good that David knew that he didn't do? He knew that you should protect another person's family. You should protect the sanctity of another person's marriage. But he didn't do that. There are lots of things in this story that, that David knew to do, the right that he knew to do, but instead he used his power as a king. You know, this is one of the themes that we've heard in the Me Too movement. People who have the kind of power that David had 
might do things that other people do, but because of their power, other people give in, other people go along with it. Bathsheba cannot be wholly blamed for this incident, can she? Because David was the king. David was the one anointed by God. He knew better. One commentator's summary of what sin is writes, it's a breakdown of a relationship with God and others. A breakdown of relationship with God and others. It's a failure to love God, others, and self. It's turning away from God. Sin is disordered love. It's important for us to, to understand the relationship that exists between personal sin, the adultery, and the sinful human nature. In verse 3, Psalm 51, verse 3, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. David knew that adultery, that murder, were wrong. Those are personal sins, things that he actually did, his actions. But then there's also the sinful human nature. In verse 5, David writes, Surely I was sinful at birth. Oh, come on, Pastor. Grace and Aaron's new baby is going to be so precious and perfect. How, how dare you apply the word sinful to that newborn baby in a few months, right? David said, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There's a pretty good articulation of the fact that we human beings are born with a problem, aren't we? We don't start out perfect. We start out flawed. We've got the potential for the image of God to be expressed in our life, but it's corrupted by sinful human nature. It's part of being a human being. I like to illustrate this, and I'll use the most recent example. There's, there's a coronavirus. Yes, I know you've probably heard at least once the past 15, 16 months, but there's this coronavirus, this invisible little germ that gets into our body through our nose or our mouth or wherever, and then it gives birth to the symptoms of COVID-19. Fever, cough, the loss of taste, smell. The lady that cut my, cuts my hair said that she has, she has had several people who had COVID who are losing their hair as if they were going through chemotherapy, coming out in bunches. Please don't let that happen. <laughs> the virus is the sinful human nature. It's that thing that we have because we're human beings, which gives birth to the symptoms the attitudes, the actions, the failure to do the right. What we see in the opening verses of Psalm 51 is David naming both the sinfulness and his sin. David names the sin. He says it in blunt and unambiguous terms, and it reveals its smallness before the mighty love and mercy of God. Leaving the sin unnamed feeds its power. Next thing you know, 
He's doing the next thing. He's murdering her husband. But naming it allows the person to take ownership of it. Only after one claims the sin as one's own can one give it over to Christ. It's important for us to say with David, I am the man. I am the transgressor. I am responsible for a baby born to somebody else's wife and a husband who was murdered by our enemies but orchestrated by the king who should have been protecting him. So how does God respond to David naming his sin? Verse 6, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David reminds us that the image of God is stamped on our life. Just as we are sinful from birth, so we were stamped with the image of God before birth in the womb. God said, it's not over yet because the image of God is still stamped on you. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God offers personal forgiveness for our personal sins, doesn't he? I say God offers forgiveness for our personal sins, doesn't he? Thank you, Jesus. That would be the appropriate response. <laughs> But then let's go on and look at verses 10 through 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, David writes, and renew a, sted renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What extraordinary words we are dominated by a sinful human nature from birth, which produces in us the symptoms of sinful behavior, sinful actions, personal sin. But there's this restoration that God offers us, not only forgiving those sins, but in John Wesley's words, defining entire sanctification, he says, entire sanctification or Christian perfection is neither more nor less than pure love. Do you believe that God loves you despite the fact that you're a sinful human being or that you were born with a sinful human nature? You believe that God loves you regardless of what you may have done? Regardless of who you are? God loves you. Wesley writes, entire sanctification or Christian perfection is neither more nor less than pure love. Love expelling sin and governing both the heart and the life of a child of God. <laughs> we are dead in our sins, aren't we? But who died for us while we were dead in our sins? Not waiting for us to get ourselves cleaned up. No, we were dead in our sins and our sinfulness and Christ died for us. The pure love of God, giving us the gift of forgiveness and mercy, giving us the gift of love, giving us the gift of being the people in the image of God that God intended us to be. 
The image of God, which had been impaired by the corruption of human sinfulness, is freed to find expressions in our thoughts and in our words and our deeds. Amen. There's an amen moment, folks. <laughs> Verses 13 through 19, it goes on. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. He goes on. We might have thought that because we fell, because we sinned, because we disappointed God, because we did something horrible, that God could never use us again. He not only loves us back into his image and back into his family, but he says, I've got work for you to do. You have a beautiful story of redemption to tell other people. And David says, I'm going to teach them. <laughs> I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to sing of God's grace and love to the heavens. And we have a few of those songs, don't we? God purifies and empowers us for a life that will glorify God. Jesus described it as the ability to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You, in your totality, can love God. To love God is something that we do in our minds and our attitudes. It's something we do in our actions. It's something we do our entire lifestyle, all of our nonverbal stuff. It's loving God in a way that other people can see it. It's being able to live above sin because we have been made in the image of God and we have been remade in the image of Christ. One old friend of mine says, God doesn't make trash, he recycles it. <laughs> Would you write that down on the mirror at home so that tomorrow morning you're brushing your teeth and combing your hair, you can say, oh, that's right. I may think I'm trash because of what my past looks like, but God has recycled me. He has remade me. He has made me useful in his image. Now, our focus must not be simply on naming our sins. That can give, give us the a form of self-preoccupation if we just spend all of our time naming the sins. The focus instead needs to be on who God is and who we are before God. I'm a sinner saved by grace, loved by my heavenly Father. The focus is on the purifying mercy of God. It's important for us to name it, but it's more important for us to know that we've been set free from it, that we've been forgiven it. There's a, a word that we use for naming our sins. It's called confession. When do we confess? I would suggest there's a, a couple answers to that. First, kind of periodically. I just finished 32 weeks of the Ignatian exercises. It's a form of scripture reading and meditation and contemplation developed by Ignatius Loyola, the Jesuits, the founder of the Jesuits. I've been meeting on a weekly basis with my spiritual director where I talk through and think through these things. One of the things, important things that I've learned from the exercises is what is called the meditation on our own sins. 
Ignatius suggests that we should call to memory all the sins of my life, looking at them year by year or period by period. Now, there's a daunting task, isn't it? Have you ever done something like that, though? Have you looked back to your childhood and, and tried to, to name the sins that you've committed over the, the, the course of your life? Have you invited God to lead you through your life history and reveal those moments when you failed the love of God and the others and of yourself? In the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's step four. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Make a catalog of all that you can remember. Step eight of the 12 steps says, make a list of all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them. So when do we confess? I, I think at least once in your life, you ought to do just one of those moral inventories. But also, and perhaps more relevantly, we should confess our sins as soon as they happen, right? It's the dailiness of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us in that pattern prayer, forgive my trespasses as I, for, as I forgive those who trespass against me. This is the kind of a daily prayer that Christians ought to use, an inventory of what's happened in the last 24 hours. In the 12 steps, at step 10, continue to make a personal inventory, and when we have wronged, promptly admit it. So when should we? Maybe a lifelong inventory, but also this day-by-day -day searching process where we confess sins that we may have committed in the past day. To whom do we confess or name our sins? I would suggest there are three. First, there's God. In verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It doesn't matter who you sin against. God is a party in that sin, isn't he? Ultimately, he who made that person in his image has been offended, has been sinned against. So to whom should we confess our sin? We need to confess it to God. Secondly, the one against whom we have sinned. Step nine of the 12 steps says, make direct, am direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I have a friend who struggled with pornography for years. Finally, he got up the courage and the humility to admit it to his wife. He said, I needed to confess my sin to the person who was being hurt most by my sin. And he said that confession gutted pornography of its power in his life. If we confess our sin to the person that we've just sinned against, it has the potential of gutting that sin of its power in our life. So we confess to God, we confess to the person against whom we sinned, and, and then I would suggest that we need to confess to an uninvolved person or group. Ooh, pastor, it's not their business. This is my stuff and my stuff alone. I would suggest that each of us needs a Nathan, a figure that we give permission to ask the hard questions and a person to whom we are willing to confess sin even if it does not involve them. We might call it an accountability partner or a spiritual director or a small group or a 12-step group. 
David just decided to tell us all. <laughs> That's what this is, right? This is a very public confession that has been read countless times in the last 3,000 years. Step five of the 12 steps says, admit to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. James, the brother of Jesus, said, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We say, oh, Catholics do that. They confess to their priests, but we're not Catholics. I think there's great wisdom in the confessional in the Catholic Church. And we need to find somebody that we can confess to. This church, men of this church, have been praying for revival for how many years, Fred? Three, four, and others probably praying. One of the things that historians have noted about revival is revivals begin when confession begins. Did you hear that? Revival begins when public confession takes place. Because as long as we're all sitting around wearing masks, no pun intended, God doesn't really have access to our hearts, right? We're putting up a barrier, a wall, a facade. But when a group of people is willing to confess their sins to one another, the facade begins to crumble. Not only will we experience greater, deeper community, but we might just experience the revival that we're praying for. So let me circle back around to the, the introduction here. David, the stellar saint, the man after God's own heart who falls into heinous sin, but there's forgiveness and restoration and purification, all of that lying on the other side of confession, of naming our sins. And what happens when we name our sins? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, personal sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, talking about holiness, entire sanctification. The story of the Bible is the story of corrupt people who were redeemed by God and made heroes of faith and giants of prayer. And that can be our story to candid. Let's bow our heads together. Now is not the time to make your lifelong catalog of sin. But I would invite you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit right now this morning the same spirit that led Nathan to seek out David, the same spirit who will be very specific about our sin. Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit as the spirit points out things that we may have thought, the attitudes, the things that we might have done, things that we left undone. Listen.
once the Spirit of God convicts us for a sin that we have committed, the good that we have left undone, the attitude, we believe that the next step is confessing it, naming it, taking ownership for it. So in your own private prayer, do that. Ask for forgiveness. Say, I am the man, I am the woman. And if we've done that sincerely, then the next thing we ought to hear is the assurance from God that we have been forgiven. God will never bring that up again. God will not use that at some point in the future to make a catalog of reasons for why you're a hopeless person. No, God has forgiven that sin has separated it from you as far as the East is from the West. He loved you when you committed that sin. He loved you when you confessed that sin. He loves you as he forgives that sin. But God is also in the process, because you have named your sin, God is in the process of making you a holy person a useful storyteller in his kingdom work. Listen as the voice of the Spirit tells you who you might need to go and confess that sin to now that you've confessed it to him. Who was responsible? Who was, who was offended? Who was sinned against? What accountability partner do you need to share this with and gut the power of that sin in your life if it's something that's been dominating your life? Listen. Lord, we thank you this morning for the image of God that has been stamped on our lives. The potential that we have to be perfect reflections of the glory of God in our world. And we thank you for your willingness to forgive us when we sin. And we thank you for the power that enables us to love you and our neighbor and ourselves with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we want to be a good reflection of your image. We want to be living, people who live a pure life. We want to be good examples, ambassadors, partners with you in kingdom work. Thank you for your willingness to forgive us. We receive it this morning with thanksgiving. In Christ's name and all of God's people say, amen.